Good morning, everybody. You guys doing all right? Everybody tired from overeating and seeing family? That's sometimes a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's good when everyone goes back to their own homes, right? Um, The holidays can be a very busy time, and in the midst of all of it, it's easy to lose sight of things. So I hope that somehow along the way, you were given a few moments of quiet to just sit and think and relax. You know that uh, that um, hard hat that Jeannie was wearing, that's uh, not just a prop, it's what she used to wear for her job. When we were dating and first got married, she was a civil engineer working for the Illinois Department of Transportation, and she would run around the highway construction projects, bossing other people around while she had that hard hat on. And seeing her with that thing on again brought back a flood of memories for me. Um, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about the past, and I'm getting ready for the start of another year. For some people, they kind of put their heads down, they're busy, and these are arbitrary designations. What's the difference between, you know, December 31st and January 1st? It's just another day. For me, I need times like that, a regular point in my life where I mark the passage of time, and I think about, it's an invitation to reflect on things. I was just thinking about how back in 1984, there was a movie that came out, based on an Arthur C. Clarke novel called 2010, A Space Odyssey. How many of you are old enough to remember that? (laughs) Look how proud we are to be old enough to remember that. I remember seeing that in the movie theater. I was a, what was I, a junior in high school back then. And remember thinking, man, I still remember feeling this very vividly. 2010 is like in the ridiculous future. People are going to be flying around in, in spaceships and going to hotels on Mars and stuff by then. And I can't believe that we're about to have the year 2010 in our rear view any day now. And that's the way time is. It passes very quickly. And I've been praying a lot for our church as we look ahead to 2011. And one thing I've been asking is, God, is there some theme that's going to tie us together? Something that I, we need to be bracing for? And I think a word that keeps coming to my heart as I'm praying for us is Transformation. Um, I really believe that next year, for some of us especially, is going to be a year of major spiritual landmarks. Now, I don't know exactly what that means for you. Maybe there's something you've been journeying along and and, and wanting to see happen in your life. Maybe you you just, uh, spiritual life is not really a part of your life at all. And maybe, truth is, you don't think it's ever going to be. That really, this is something for your relatives, for your friends, I don't know. But maybe this next year, there's a sense that I have that you might be surprised by God. And so I wanted to preach out of a story that is one of my favorites, partly because it's a beautiful story of transforming love, and also partly because it's about a short guy. And um, just looking at me, you can see why that would be meaningful to me. I've, I've grown up with a bit of a, uh, a Napoleon complex, and I always felt like I was the shortest guy in every group I went to. In fact, I would really love when I go to gym class and there was just one guy shorter than me. So this story has a special place in my heart. I want to read it for you out of Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version, the ESV translation. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, I love that story because it's a story about something that we don't expect to see. We see a dramatic turnaround in the life of a man who, for everyone who knew him, probably already had him figured out and boxed in. And the truth is, a lot of us are that way, aren't we? Maybe we feel that way. Maybe we feel so boxed in by our history, by all the years of life, the way we've lived a certain way, that we really don't believe that we can ever be different. And maybe there's someone in your life around you who has caused you deep pain, who has hurt you, who has frustrated you by being the same frustrating person year after year after year, and you're thinking, you know, people don't really change. The truth is we are who we are by the time you're 25. That's it, man. If you're a jerk now, you'll be a jerk the day you die. If you're generous now, you'll be generous. when you. And that's the way we kind of think about it. We don't believe change is possible. And that's why transformation stories still take our breath away. They give us a bit of a shock because we don't think it's possible. And yet it really happens all the time. I believe that in following Jesus Christ, the one consistent thing I've seen in him is that when Jesus enters a scene, when he comes into a place or into a life, whether you want it or not, change is coming. And the change is always a transformation towards beauty and towards something better, something that we were always meant to be. In fact, I don't know that it's just an improvement. I think it's a restoration of what was lost through sin. It's a rebuilding into our lives that image which we were always meant to have. And so I want to explore the story of Zacchaeus in three different stages of Zacchaeus' story. And the first stage is that Zacchaeus was lost. Those aren't my words. If you look at verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And he was saying this specifically about what had just happened with Zacchaeus. So Jesus looked at this man who's just had this major life event, and he says, When I first met him, he was lost, but I sought him out. And I saved them. Now the truth is, today in the U.S., um, a lot of people take exception or offense at that language. Who are you to call anybody lost? And I think there's a valid point there. I'm nobody to call anybody else lost. And I think the reason that some people um, take exception or offense at that word is because often we who follow Jesus say it with an air of moral superiority. Oh my gosh, I'm like so close to God and you're so lost. And what we really mean by lost is not about relational distance to God. But what we mean is you have some serious rough edges morally. You do things that I don't approve of. You like alcohol a little too much and you sometimes look at porn on the internet and sometimes when someone cuts you off, you say four-letter words. And so when we talk about lost, 
we have a stereotypical picture in our minds of someone who is morally sloppy or reprehensible. Now, if that's the way we use the word lost, not a person in this room has a right to use that word. Do we? Because the truth, if we're honest about it, is even the people who sit in this church every Sunday, even me, who has to stand up here, you should try this sometime. Preach at other people about how we should live. I know in my own heart that I've got a lot of junk still left over in my life. I've got a big mess going on in here, and God is redeeming it, but I, in my own right, have absolutely no ground to stand on to look at another person and say, you are lost, as in, a.k.a., morally foul. And that's not the way that Jesus uses it either. He's not denying that sin is is present in Zacchaeus' life, that there is a darkness settling over that man, which is visible. But he doesn't see in Zacchaeus a darkness he doesn't see anywhere else. The loss he's referring to is simply this. When Jesus looks at humanity, he sees only two classes of people. Those who know him and are close to him, and those who are far from him. Those are the only two ways he would divide humanity, really, if it comes right down to it. And and found or saved is when somebody is snatched by Jesus out of a life far from him, and they come to know him and gloriously are transformed. Lost is simply saying, you are far from me right now. I wish you were here, but it's like when, when a teenage child runs away from home and the parents have no idea where this guy is. Really hope you're alive. We hope you're okay. Home is where you belong. And isn't that really what lost is? I haven't been lost in a long time because I have GPS. Okay, But lost is when there's a place you're supposed to be and you're not there. That's what lost means. It presumes <clears throat> a place of belonging. A place that we call the place where I should be. And what Jesus says is that the place we all should be is with him. And if you're not with him, then by that simple factual definition, you are to him and to yourself lost by that standard. He doesn't use it derogatorily. And so here's the great thing. He, he, he speaks of, of Zacchaeus' loss, but he's not going to leave him out there I think Zacchaeus would have resisted that language too, though. He would have resented it. Because if you think about Zacchaeus, he was in Jericho, one of the most powerful men in the city. He had a lot of money. He was politically very well connected. He could drop names until the sun set and still start up again in the morning. This guy, he could escape all kinds of earthly trouble and people crossed to the other side of the street when he came down. Because who wants to see the tax man coming? Especially a guy whose authority is equivalent to that of Rome. And so if you talk to Zacchaeus and said, hey, Zacchaeus, probably had to talk this way to Zacchaeus. Say, hey, Zacchaeus, you're lost. There's something wrong with your life. He would have resented that label because he wasn't feeling very lost. He wasn't feeling like he was deficient in any way other than when he took a jump shot on the basketball court. He wasn't feeling like he had a big gap to make up. He was a big shot. He had built for himself a life that was bulletproof. And so if you told him he was lost, he probably would have been resentful or at the very least confused by that kind of language. And yet Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, that's what you were, believe it or not. Now Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Luke is very careful to give his title appropriately. And and what that meant was he was in the employ of the Roman emperor 
And he was used, though he was a Jew, he was used by the Roman emperor to collect taxes for him. And as a chief tax collector, he had a staff of guys under him who reported to him and collected taxes on his behalf. Now, the reason that the word tax collector was like a profane word in those days, they were universally hated because these guys didn't just collect the taxes. Now, as a chief tax collector, if he did his job completely above board and without corruption, he still would have been a very wealthy and powerful man. But Luke is careful to point out he was a chief tax collector and he was dang rich. The implications of that, plus if you couple it with Zacchaeus' testimony later on, or rather his confession, it's clear that he didn't just collect the taxes. He overcharged people for taxes, and then he skimmed the difference off the top so that Rome still got what they were expecting, and he took a little surcharge for himself. Now, the people he was overcharging for their taxes were not wealthy people. They were his poor countrymen living under the oppression of another empire, And they couldn't afford this extra tariff on their taxes. Some of us know exactly what that feels like. It seems like every time anything happens, Uncle Sam wants a piece of it. I bought a used car from another person who he had already paid his taxes when he bought the car. I'm paying my income taxes. But just because we traded possession of an automobile, the state government said, hey, we get our share. They're like the mafia sometimes. They're like, what did you have to do with this transaction? Nothing, but we get our cut. And they wanted around $1,000 in tax money because I bought a car from another citizen. And so there's this feeling like we're getting taxed to death and I don't like the person who's asking for the money, especially when he's not even asking for the right amount, but he's gouging me so he can pad his own pockets. Does that make you a little angry? Are you guys alive today? I don't know about you, but that ticks me off that people out there are like that. And you wonder as you think about police corruption or government corruption or pastoral corruption or parental corruption, when people have power and authority, why do they tend to misuse it so often? Isn't it frustrating that people with power who should be stewarding it humbly often use it in the wrong ways? What makes a man like Zacchaeus treat his fellow countrymen like that. Well, I've been dwelling on that a little bit, and here's my theory. There's an old saying that hurt people hurt people. Do you get what I'm saying there when I say hurt people hurt people? This is not in any way to give an excuse to those who cause pain to others. I'm a firm believer in personal responsibility. But I know this, that the vast majority of people I have dealt with in my life who caused great pain in other people's lives, they're also holding in their own lives a great pain. The thing that surprises me is that most people are actually unaware of that pain. They gloss over it. They minimize it. They say, oh, you, you bleeding heart weirdos in your psycho babble mumbo jumbo always talking about pain. I don't have any pain. I'm a baller, yo. I, I got strength. I come hard. I, I, I don't need pity. I don't have anything that I'm working out. Yeah, you do. We all have it. There's pain everywhere because the world sucks. And the world sucks as we all stink. We make the world a cesspool of pain and suffering sometimes. Sometimes we make it kind of nice. We hang Christmas lights. We give each other nice presents. But most of the time, we are contributing in ways we can never imagine to the pain and darkness of this world. So there is pain. And that pain often drives people to do things 
that if the light of Christ would shine on their lives, they would realize, awaken to it, and say, I don't need to do this. I think part of Zacchaeus' pain, or at least the genesis of a lot of it, is his shortness. I say that with at least some amount of personal foreknowledge of what that means. But the fact that he says, and Luke is not just describing short. I mean, everyone was short in those days. If you see the skeletons we unearthed, people like, uh, the NBA would have been five foot three or something like that, okay? I would have been a giant. I would have been Yao Ming in ancient Palestine. <laughs> so this guy is probably more like four foot six, somewhere in that range, Okay. He was notably short, enough that when you choose a few words to describe him, everyone in town goes, oh yeah, you mean the short dude who happens to be the chief tax collector. Now when you have a physical feature related to your birth, which you had no control over, and other people, because it distinguishes you so clearly and so quickly, they make much of it, it starts to give you a complex. And you know, children are so cruel. They're so dumb sometimes. They they point out, you know... (laughs) Mommy, look at that person. And look at this. And hey, you know you have lots of marks on your face. And do you know your nose is really... And you know, like, these kids are so cruel. And you can imagine Zacchaeus growing up. He's always, always like, why don't we send Zacchaeus under the fence? He's small. Oh, can you reach... Oh, never mind. I forgot. You can't reach anything. And he probably heard junk like that all the time. And you know, what happens to a person is when they first realize that they've got this stuff going on, they start out getting mad at the world. They're just mad at the situation. Who do you blame for shortness? Darn fate, right? I mean, whose fault is it that I was born short? It's nobody's fault. It's just something I'm born with. It is what I am. And at some point, you start out getting mad at the world. But we don't stay mad at, at inanimate objects for very long. The human heart needs a target for that wrath. And before long, we're getting mad at who? Well, we're getting mad at God, because in the end... Isn't he ultimately responsible for what we look like, what our lives are like, which family we're born into? How many of you shook your fists at God when you were teenagers or maybe last week and you said, why didn't you give me this family? I didn't ask for these crazy people to be my family. It should have been different. I wish my family was different. How many of you look in the mirror sometimes and go, why do I look like this? Why do I have these debilitating things in me, these hindrances. And then you start getting mad at the people who are insensitive to you, who make much of that which you're trying to hide and suppress and minimize. They keep bringing it right to the front. And little by little, the anger and the pain all get mixed. And what happens to a person is they begin moving towards compensatory behavior. That's why we, we know exactly what we're talking about when we say Napoleon complex. Napoleon was short, but he kicked butt on the battlefield. And part of what made him so ruthless was because he didn't want anyone to say short people ain't got no reason to live. We see this kind of thing everywhere we look. There are people who've always longed to be liked, to be accepted, affirmed, loved. But since no one will give that to them, they settle for, I'm going to make you afraid of me or at least jealous of me. It's compensatory behavior. There are people who want to be unconditionally accepted But they don't get that. And so they settle for compensatory behavior that makes them sexually desirable. 
And the tragedy of this kind of thing, this cycle, is that so much of that compensatory behavior, which at one point seems to give you control or power over others around you, the ability to to control the way they react and respond to you, it seems to empower you, but it's actually often so self-destructive. The person everybody fears, nobody likes. You walk into a room, everyone bows, but behind your back, they all wish they could stick one in your back because they don't like you. And what you really want is not their, their fear or their bitter submission. You want to be a part of something real. And yet, because of your pain, you keep lashing out in behavior that creates an illusion of power and only takes you further and further from what your heart is longing for. This is another way in which Zacchaeus, like so many others today, was lost. You look at his life and you say, I see what you're trying to go for, but you're not getting what you really want. And you're not ever going to get it like that. I don't think lost is just the stereotypical picture of the strung out drug addict lying in a gutter. I think lost is anybody who's got that hollow, scooped out place in their heart and they're far from God and they're wondering what I do with this. I've achieved a lot, but I still don't feel like I found what I'm looking for. In the midst of that, there's this wonderful love of God because Jesus chooses this time in Zacchaeus' life to pass through town. He's got maybe a couple weeks of life left on this earth, and he, he passes through Jericho as though he's got a divine appointment with this man. And that's the love of God for us. You know, I don't know... If you're visiting our church today, I don't know how you came to be here. Maybe you're in town for the holidays. But maybe you're here partly because you're supposed to hear some of these things. I don't know. I know that it's been the nature of my relationship with God that sometimes he really surprises us with divine appointments. He shows up at at points in your life where you're not really expecting to look for him. Where you're just going somewhere and, and you'll meet someone or hear something and it sets your life on another course. It gets your, your gears turning. And that's the way it was with with Zacchaeus, that Jesus enters his town just then. And the second part of his story is that he's found. This is a bit shorter part of the story because it's so direct. Zacchaeus, it seems like he's a pretty motivated seeker because he really, for some reason, we don't know what was happening in the backstory, but something has happened in Zacchaeus' life that's got his his juices flowing. He's like, I am hell-bent on seeing this Jesus. I don't know why i got to see him, but I know that when he's in town, I've got to see him. And the truth is, that's surprising because Zacchaeus was probably a very irreligious person because religious people had really hurt him. It's the religious people in town who kept branding him a sinner. Oh, kids, don't go near that man. Yeah, you know, we pay him our taxes, but he's a sinner. He's a dirty, dirty bird. If you touch him, you're going to have to go to the temple and get cleaned. And that's the way people in the religious circles talked about this guy. He's a human being. He's a man with a family and a home and a heart. He's got pain he's bearing, probably some of it caused by them in childhood. But they label him... So conveniently, you are one of the other tribe. You are a sinner. And so I imagine that Zacchaeus, a normal day, would have been like, what, some dude named Jesus, some great teacher of the religious sect is passing through? Who cares? Keep counting the money. But for some reason, he leaves his office today. He's like, I've got to go and see this Jesus when he's in our town. 
Now, it says that the crowds had already gathered, so you're picturing something like the 4th of July parade, right? All these people lined the six deep, you know, lining the streets. And if you're a little kid, people will let you through. Oh, let the little kid cut in line. But if you're a little adult and you're not really popular in town, ain't nobody, everyone's like this. They're like, sorry, dude, you know, my kid's got to... And so they're blocking him and he's frustrated. He's, he's trying to like cut in and he can't. And so it says, he hikes up his thing, he just starts running ahead of the crowd to where he anticipates Jesus will pass by. And when he gets there, I think he could have been at the front of the street, but instead he decides to play it differently. He climbs a sycamore tree. Now, if you saw sycamore trees in the ancient Near East, they're not like the United States or European or South American sycamores. They're a little different. They're, they, they're related to fig trees, and the branches are low, so you can climb them pretty easily. But what's nice about a sycamore tree is it has broad branches with very large leaves, so it creates good cover. And so the idea was, here's his key is his plan. Before we give him too much credit for being a zealous seeker, yes, he was running ahead to see Jesus because something in him was prompting him to check it out. But he wanted to do it on his terms, at his pace, under situations that he could control. And so the idea was, I'll be up in this tree, far from everybody else's prying eyes. I've got a good view, but if he looks up at me, all he'll see really is a tree. And if he's really sharp, maybe he'll see a couple feet poking out from one of the branches. And that's a safe place to check it out without costing anything, without exposing anything. Let me just listen from the balcony. And it's interesting, that's that's the way it is with churches that have balconies. So often the people who sit up there are saying, something in me wants to hear this, but I don't want anybody shaking my hand, getting my address, and mailing me junk about your Easter service. I've got a a schedule going, and I've got to be comfortable. I've got to do this at my own pace. And I totally get that, and I respect it. I'm not so sure that Jesus always plays along with our schedule, though. Because I think Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And it's been my own personal testimony and that of hundreds of people I've met that the day they met Jesus in a marvelous encounter, it was under circumstances that really surprised them because they weren't looking to get saved that day. When I got saved, I was looking to pick up girls at this retreat where the girls were the cutest girls in town. You really want to find cute girls, um, you got to go to a retreat and you had to go to this particular one and that's why I was there. I'm confessing it openly to you. Okay? I meet the Lord Jesus at that retreat. It rocked me. I was so shocked because nothing in my heart longed for Him. I wasn't desperately lonely or hurt. If anything, I was feeling kind of randy and I was feeling like I was 17 and I want a girlfriend. And Jesus meets me instead. That's the interesting thing about Jesus. Is as much as you think you might be seeking him, he is really motivated to find you. And here's the great thing. He's up in this tree, hiding out for a safe glimpse of Jesus, maybe to overhear a few conversations. And can you imagine his shock and horror when all of a sudden Jesus stops and it's like in slow-mo now. He starts looking up at the tree and Zacchaeus is like, dude, no, no, no. Don't look at me. It's like that moment when you're at a a comedy club. Have you ever been to a comedy club where the the comic on stage likes to do audience participation? And he comes down and goes, hey, hey, what's what's your name, Mike? What's your name? Mike, what do you do for a living? Yeah. It doesn't matter what Mike says after that. Because 
regardless of what he does for a living, I'm going to make him the butt of my jokes for the next 10 minutes. I don't care what you do for a living. You and I, I'm going to use you as a prop. And it's scary because you're in the audience and the comic starts coming down. He's walking around. You're like, please don't ask me what I do for a living. Okay? I think Zacchaeus had a moment like that. Please don't draw attention to me. I'm not ready for this. I didn't come here to get singled out. The whole reason I'm in a tree in the old ancient Palestinian equivalent of an Armani suit, I'm up in this tree like a little kid, is because I don't want anyone messing with me today. I'm just here to look. And Jesus says, I know that's what you are here to do, but I've come here for divine appointment. In just a little while, I'm going to die. But I came to this town to meet you. And, and the amazing thing, and this has got to be creepy, he calls him by name. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, those are the little details we just kind of overlook. If a, if a strange celebrity stops in front of the tree I'm hiding in and knows my first name, that's going to freak me out a little bit. Now here's the thing. At that moment, while the shock and, and his blood pressure is up, that conversation, that encounter could have gone two ways. Jesus could have looked and said, everyone, stop for a minute. You see that little guy in the tree hiding like a coward? This is exactly what my kingdom's not about. An abusive, greedy, rich man who takes advantage of his own countrymen for the sake of the Roman emperor. And who now hides like a fool in a tree so he can glimpse me from safety. That is not what my kingdom's about. Zacchaeus, you should be ashamed of yourself, little man. You look like an Oompa Loompa hiding up there. And you can imagine, Zacchaeus, it could have gone that way. And he'd be like, oh, dude, I was just the object lesson for a horrible sermon. He abused me in front of everybody. It wouldn't have surprised him that that's what religious people always seem to do. I bet you Zacchaeus' name was spoken in the temple all the time. You know, like that guy, Zacchaeus. Don't be like him. But that's not the way it goes, is it? And this is why it so shocks everybody. Jesus looks at this guy, and instead of humiliating him, he honors him. Instead of rejecting him, he receives him. And he says, Zacchaeus, you need to come down from there right now because of all the houses I can stay at, I want to be a guest in your home. It's your house I want to see the inside of. It's your food I want to eat, your bed I want to sleep on. I want to be your friend. Now, I know in American culture, it's pretty rude to invite yourself over to a person's house. But this is a statement, an act of great honor bestowed upon Zacchaeus. He's saying, look, I want you to be the talk of the town for different reasons now. I know you're expecting me to humiliate you, but I'm not going to do that because that is not what my kingdom is about. I didn't come to find the people who thought they were righteous without me. I came to seek people like you who are far away. And even though you didn't know you were lost, I'm calling you home. And right now, as you look at my face, Zacchaeus, do you not feel this pull towards me that home is with me right now? And it's clear that this has an effect on him because it says Zacchaeus came down right away from the tree and received him into his home joyfully. I believe that's the moment where the conversion begins. Because to me, Christianity as a journey is not about becoming morally perfect. 
If that's what you think Christianity is about, everybody dies a D student. We will not ever get there. If you ever hear a church preach that you can be morally perfect this side of earth by trying real hard, getting a mentor, being discipled, they are lying to you and they don't preach from the Bible. We're not comfortable making this adjustment for you, even though it's genuine, even though something inside of you is coming alive. It's hard to do it because the, the friends around you grumble about it. Oh, Bible. We will work hard at obeying the Lord, at growing morally. That will be a part of the journey, but that is not the, the grading scale by which we're measured. The primary measuring of you, God will say one day. Lord, did we not do this and do that? And he says, behold, away from me, I don't know you. The greatest goal of the spiritual journey is to know Jesus, to receive him into the heart of your life. And from there, and only from there, all the righteous deeds have power and meaning. And with, apart from that, it is nothing. This is what Christianity always will be, always has been. A journey of growing proximity and intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. So what he does for Zacchaeus that day, is he says, by the simple act of jumping down from that tree towards me, you've begun the journey that matters. The journey of getting closer to me. Because from there, you will start to be transformed as a human being. I'm so thankful that that's the gospel I heard at the age of 17. Because if I heard a bunch of people tell me to stop doing this and to stop doing that, it would have been such an irritant to me because nothing in me wants to stop doing the things that make me feel good. Things that make me feel alive. But when I met Jesus, he messed with me big time. He started changing stuff in me. I loved swearing. I've told you that. I still feel like swearing almost every day. And I'm a pastor. Swearing was such a part of my makeup but when I became saved, the profanity that was always right there at the tip of my tongue, it seemed to go somewhere else. I can't really explain it. But he started to mess with my insides. And swearing no longer became about whether I'm a good person or a bad person, but just watching the way I talk around somebody I love. And I think that's supposed to be what the journey is all about for us who follow Jesus. I think there are a lot of people who are conflicted because they feel drawn to God. But it's that grumbling, isn't it, of everybody else who says, Oh, Zacchaeus, why would he want to go eat at Zacchaeus' house? Zacchaeus is the worst man in town spiritually. And isn't that the way it is? That because we don't believe anybody changes, when someone is changing, we want to shove them right back in the cage they came from. Oh, what is this? You're getting all religious on me now? Come on, dude. And especially men. Watch a man try to grow spiritually and look at the reaction of all his boys, his friends, his crew, his posse. All the guys he thinks would die for me in an instant will bail me out of jail in the middle of the night in Alaska if I asked him. All his homies basically say, well, we like you the way you are. If you change, we feel like we might have to change. We're not comfortable making this adjustment for you, even though it's genuine, even though something inside of you is coming alive. It's hard to do it because the, the friends around you grumble about it. Oh, look at him trying to be all religious now. That's not what you're trying to be. You're trying to become yourself. But sometimes the greatest hindrance is the pressure we feel all around us, the grumbling voices that say you will always be who you've always been. 
Don't listen to that. Let me give you the last phase of his story. And that is that he was lost, he was found. And it's important you get this order right. He was lost, he was found, and then he was gloriously transformed. We get that backwards so much. We believe it's lost, transformed, and found. But it's not that way. The grace of Jesus causes Zacchaeus to jump down from the tree, open his home. There's this enthusiasm. And even though the people grumble, Zacchaeus has a life force working inside him now he can't suppress. And so he begins to change inwardly. And the people are understandably cynical because he'd caused them a great deal of pain. And that was real. That was history. But all that stuff Zacchaeus did against them was done when his heart was empty and dark, when he had a longing and a bunch of pain he's processing, and he didn't know what on earth to do with it. And what he decided was, the only way I'm going to medicate this pain is by getting even with everybody, by making sure that there's nobody that is above me in this town. Now, see, you can't tell a person like that, hey, Zach, listen, in order to be more spiritual, you should just give up half your money, and if you've cheated anyone, make sure you pay them back times four. 400% interest as restitution. You can't say that to somebody unless some switch deep inside gets flipped. And if you're one of the people who is far from God, who is far from God today, who has been recently, isn't it annoying when people keep telling you about the stuff you should change before any switch inside of you ever gets flipped? It's kind of like when, when you're single and everyone around you is trying to set you up. Hey, there's this great girl and let me describe her to you. And they give you her whole resume and you're like, am I supposed to fall in love with a list of qualities? I can't fall in love with someone unless a switch inside gets flipped. I can act like the perfect boyfriend, but I won't love someone unless something inside gets turned alive. And that's where transformation begins. He is accepted by Jesus and something gets clicked. And just like that, Zacchaeus unprompted, magnanimously says, Lord, let me tell you something. Half of all this, I'm going to give it to people who've got nothing. All of a sudden, I am troubled by how much suffering there is in Jericho, and I want to give away half of my stuff. And then he goes, furthermore, for some weird reason, I feel this keen sense of justice out of the blue. Corruption was my native language, the water in which I swam, but all of a sudden the idea of corruption makes me intensely uncomfortable. I want to pay back everyone I've cheated, and I want to make things right with my fellow citizens. Now, that was unprompted. Some people read that and they say, see, he's paying for his salvation. This is blood money. It's the purchase price for his good standing with God. It is not. His journey towards Jesus began when he jumped down from that tree. This glorious act of generosity and justice is not the payment for salvation. It is the proof of it. And here's what's so important about that. Money was his source of power. It was what made his shortness not matter anymore. When you meet Joe Pesci in person, you're going to be starstruck. You're not going to be thinking, dang, you're short. You're going to be thinking, dang, you're famous and rich. And can I have your autograph? That's what it was for him. And for him to let go of it was to let go of everything that used to give his life shape and form and strength and confidence. You can't do that as a human being without something else inside taking the place of that skeletal structure. And that is what the unconditional accepting 
reconciling love of Jesus does for each of us. If you're feeling stuck in your life right now, if there's an area in your life where you feel like you've been going through the same cycle, it's getting boring now, over and over, the place where you might be stuck is that the unconditional grace and love of Jesus has not been dwelled upon, reflected on, received, because that is the place where every good thing coming out of us finds its root. You will never be a good person by trying to do good things. You will only be good as the Lord Jesus makes you good. And the greatest work you will ever do in this life is to jump down from that tree and walk towards him. That is what this church will teach until the day God takes me away. That is our only message, the good news of the gospel, is that God is reconciling us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, amazing things start to come out of our lives. Every talent, every gift, every capacity and passion he's put into us starts to shine. And we're not the only ones changed, but the world around us is deeply impacted by the life he's changing in us. It's my prayer that that's the way it works for us as we contemplate change in 2011. What I didn't want to do today was to give you this heavy load on your shoulders. Next year, be better. Do more. Go faster. Run harder. That isn't what I want you to hear today. But it is to to say this. Go where Jesus is. Look for him. He's looking for you. Reconnect to him in meaningful ways. Everything good starts from that place. And it's my prayer for you that you will all meet Jesus in the street next year. Let's pray together. What's interesting is one chapter before this story of Zacchaeus, in Luke 18, it records that Jesus had another encounter with a very rich young man, a man who had great power and connections. And he said to that man, if you want to follow me, give up everything and just go. And that rich young man could not let go of the grip he had on his money because ultimately the money had a grip on him. And then Jesus turns to his followers and says, Look at how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He was saying that to illustrate that the hold the world has on people is pretty powerful. And his followers look at him and they ask him, My goodness, then who can be saved? And here's what Jesus says back. With man, it is impossible, but with God, anything is possible. And what he's saying is, yeah, I know it's hard for rich people to come to faith, but I can do even that. And one chapter later, as he meets Zacchaeus, he's true to his word. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us 
It matters not that you didn't ask for that or that you don't feel particularly lost. The beginning of life, I believe this with all my heart, is when a human being meets their maker and you don't have to die to meet your maker. Let's pray that each of us would continue on that great journey of meeting him. I'm going to give us some time of quiet wherever you are right now. Let's just take two minutes and respond in our own quiet way without shame, without pride. Let's just go to him.